Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to be able to gather together like this as your adopted children, set apart from the world, made holy by your grace and by the precious blood of your Son. Father, we pray right now for the sick in our congregation, those who are struggling. You know their every struggle and their every need, and we ask that you heal them and comfort them according to your will. Father, we also thank you so much for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to pay our price once for all so that even though as we deal with suffering and struggles in this life, we know that eternal life has been purchased already through his work on the cross. We're forever grateful, Father. And we ask that you bless this message, guide the speaker, help us all understand what your Spirit's message is for us tonight. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. Why is our hope so certain? Part two. So I was thinking as I was reviewing this evening, um, getting ready for right before service, really. I was thinking how other religions in this world, they can't be sure they have the truth. No other religion in this world, whether it's an official you know, major religion, or if it's uh, some kind of a spiritualism thing going on, which is all kinds of varieties of that. None of them can be confident that they have the truth. Uh, they're hoping, as the English word hoping means. And what I mean by that is, you know, when we say the word hope in English, it means more like a wish than a, than a confidence, right? I hope this comes true, or I hope this is the truth. That's all they can really say because they don't have the evidence that they have the truth, as we do. In Christianity, we know we have the truth. We have so much evidence that God's given us as well. So we hope in a Greek way. As I mentioned before, the Greek word for hope really means a confident expectation. So just think about that as we ask this question on the board, why is our hope so certain? Our hope is so certain, and it's actually a confidence because of all God reveals to us in all different ways, um, especially because of the Word. So, on that note, let me ask this question, which came out on Sunday morning. When a person places their trust in Christ, just how confident can they be in the hope of eternal life and salvation from their sins? And as we talked about on Sunday, most of you in this room know this answer academically you know what the Bible says about it. But in this life, none of us possess a perfect, complete hope in our hearts all the time. It's impossible in the flesh. We all, at times, doubt, lack faith, um, give in to weaknesses and temptations that pull us away from having a confident hope. So you might ask yourself, where am I, on a regular basis, where am I on what we called the hope meter on Sunday? Where am I on this? Where, where, where am I 
you know, it's in your own heart, right? No one, no one else can tell you or measure it for you. Where is my hope level on a regular basis? And, you know, as you keep growing and you keep increasing in this hope level, so to speak, on a habitual basis, right, that's, that's evidence that God is working in you. Um, there's going to be times and bad days for all of us. Um, and if that's a habitual thing, you might want to dive into the Word of God a little bit more to really, you know, realize you have a problem without it. You, your hope can't be built up without the Word. But if we're honest, we often vary day to day on where we uh, come in on the hope meter. Sometimes our faith wanes, and therefore the confidence of our hope wanes also. Faith and hope are very closely related. But the Lord is trying to build up our faith through the faithfulness of His Word and His Spirit so that we're steadfast in hope as we live out our lives in the devil's world. Again, He wants us to be, because we should be, steadfast in hope, even immovable, because Christ is the one we're hoping in. We're not hoping in ourselves, right? We're not hoping in our own strength or faithfulness. We're hoping in Christ, and He is immovable. He's the rock. And so the Bible says this is where you should be, and this is where I want to get you, to a place of steadfastness, where you're not rocked by anything. Excuse the pun. Nothing in this world can rock you in a bad way because you have the hope, you're steadfast, you, you know that you have the truth. So on the board... Even though we'll never have perfect hope in this life, God wants our hope to be ever-increasing experientially. And those who continually submit to His Word and His Spirit, God will give them more faith and increase their hope over time. He promises to do that. Uh, Philippians 1.6 and Philippians 2.13 is where God promises to complete the good work in us. So it's God's work. It's our humility. It's our decision to seek, as we will see. So again, even though we'll never have perfect hope in this life, God wants our hope to be ever-increasing experientially, just like a good father would want his children to be ever-increasing in their confidence of their father taking care of them, for example. So, we search for more treasure in God's Word. We seek to understand the supernatural things of God. And as promised in Holy Scripture, if we seek, we will find when we seek for Him with all our heart, as in Jeremiah 29. The results of this seeking, this honest seeking, let's call it, the results of this is going to be possessing His peace, even on a daily basis. See how these things are all related? Your peace increases, your faith increases, your hope increases. They actually build on one another. Part of the supernatural spiritual walk that God gives us and, and helps us with. So another way to put it is this on the board, our main question. Do we carry a certain definite unwavering hope within us on a regular basis? The Lord wants us to continue to seek Him so that our personal confidence in His salvation is ever on the increase within us. Again, the Lord wants us to continue to seek Him 
so that our personal confidence in his salvation is ever on the increase within us. It'll never be perfect, but it can always be strengthened. It can always be stronger as long as we're in this body, in this world. So in this series, what we're seeing uh, that's part of our great hope, or the reason we have such a strong hope, is that Jesus Christ is our great high priest who perfectly represents us all to God. Hebrews 3.1 and Hebrews 4.14. So this was a big emphasis on Sunday, and this is a big reason for our personal hope in the Lord being steadfast and unwavering. And the book of Hebrews is helping us a lot uh, with this particular angle. So turn again to Hebrews 3, verse 1. We're going to review these scriptures from Sunday in Hebrews. I hope you're able to go review a little bit on your own and, and read Hebrews 7 as the Spirit suggested. And you know, I was thinking about Hebrews. Um, you know how pastors always said, too, that the more you read your Bible... And the more you just keep reading, the more you get your answers. And so many times we stop when we get stuck. And the answer maybe is only a few verses afterwards or in the next chapter. And there's no book, you know, greater in that respect than the book of Hebrews. Because as you just keep reading, the story keeps unfolding and it keeps padding and, and explaining what was just stated uh, to, to make it more real and uh, understandable. So let's look at Hebrews 3, 1, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as God also was, uh, I'm sorry, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Every, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So there we see Jesus is called the Apostle and High Priest of our Confession. On the board, the Lord has many titles throughout Scripture, and He has fulfilled every office perfectly, and that includes the office of High Priest. You can go home and do your own research on that if you want. Just you know, Google the titles for the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll see how many there are throughout Scripture. And the Lord has fulfilled them all to a T. And high priest is a very key one in this study concerning our hope. So we see this also in Hebrews 4.14. Go to Hebrews 4.14. This declaration of Christ's high priesthood. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
See, Jesus is fighting for us at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us while the Bible says Satan accuses us before God. You can remember that in the book of Job. Satan accuses us before God even after we're saved, as we sin, as we fail. But Jesus is there interceding for us the whole time nonstop, like maybe a good attorney would, representing his client. And that's what we have, a perfect attorney, and one that totally satisfies the judge. So that's why we have confidence to approach the throne of grace in prayer and even ask for more mercy and grace in our lives. What father does not want to hear his son ask for more mercy and grace? Like in humility, right? Isn't that what every father wants to see this son? Humble, willing to learn, willing to follow. Even when he makes mistakes, he comes back and apologizes or confesses and wants a good relationship with his father. What father wouldn't want what's stated in verse 16? Draw near with confidence to me. And you can do that because of your great high priest. As we've seen lately, any good father loves when his children come to him for help and guidance. So, first of all, this is all possible through the channel of Jesus Christ, our high priest representing us. The Spirit wanted us to make sure we understand what a high priest is, according to the Scriptures. And he gave us a uh, basic definition of a priest which is laid out, you know, very plainly in Scripture. So on the board, a priest is someone appointed by God to represent sinful people before him. Pretty simple. A priest is someone appointed by God to represent sinful people before God. So look at Hebrews 5.1. Again, it's plainly stated here for us. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So in the Old Testament, under the law, there were many priests over many years from the tribe of Levi. We talked about this on Sunday. They were given this task in Hebrews 5.1 to represent the people to God. But then there was the high priest. And on the board, the high priest was the one appointed to enter the Holy of Holies in the temple once per year on the Day of Atonement, to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, to cover the sins of the people. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. But his job was to spread, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, which covered the sins of the people. Only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies. He was the one appointed for that uh, major task, responsibility. However, it was a temporary covering of the people's sin. And that's why they did it every year. Until the Messiah would come and remove their sin once for all as the Lamb of God. So that was a temporary fix, a temporary solution um, you know, where people could obey something to show that they believed in humility to follow God's commands. But their sin wasn't totally removed from them. It was just covered for the time being. 
But that's a little background on the high priest also. And as we just read in Hebrews, Holy Scripture tells us Jesus became our great high priest once for all to represent us to God the Father. And as we saw on Sunday, he was different from all other high priests. Jesus became our great high priest according to a different order, not from the tribe of Levi under the law, but from a priesthood that lasts forever with no designated beginning or end. So on the board, Jesus was a Jew, born from the tribe of Judah. So he was not from the tribe of Levi, from which all Jewish priests came forth. Hebrews 7.14 tells us that, and Revelation 5.5 as well. Let's turn to Revelation 5.5 just to see this with our eyes. The proof in Scripture. uh, Revelation 5.5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. This is a reference to Jesus Christ. He's called the lion from the tribe of Judah. So we know Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, which doesn't allow him to be a priest under the Mosaic law. So what the Spirit has had us doing on Sunday and today is kind of like building a case for the uniqueness, the extreme uniqueness of Christ's high priesthood and why it had to be different, if you think about it because we're talking about eternal things instead of temporary things. The Lord, it's great. The Lord has his ways. Uh, They're obviously far beyond our ways. And I love how no matter how long you might be into the word, no matter how much you think you understand God's plan, he always has a curveball for us. And he always has something that doesn't make sense to us, even from our spiritual point of view, even what we think we know of the word and how things work in God's plan probably about a hundred curveballs you could see in a year if you keep reading your Bible. And it's wonderful. None of it contradictory, but like God says, I'm going to do this my way, a different way, just so you realize you never have it all figured out. And really that's what's happening with this unique priesthood, high priesthood of Christ. And, and uh, the other thing about God I love that is that he always comes up with a better way. And we see this word better several times in in Hebrews in these chapters. Um, It's really an understatement, right, for God to say this way is better. His way is perfect. It's eternal, the things he accomplishes with it. But it's something that man wouldn't even consider. So, for example, just as a reminder to keep us humble, on the board, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Per God's order of things, Jesus would become our great high priest according to a never-ending priesthood, which is almost unheard of in the Bible, except for one guy that we started studying on Sunday. And we also might say this priesthood is one that's not made with human hands. 
kind of alluding to Hebrews 8.2, where the heavenly tabernacle, where the real Holy of Holies is, is not made with human hands. It's made by the Lord. So let's read uh, from Hebrews 5 in context. Again, go to Hebrews 5.1. Where are we in Revelation? Hebrews 5.1. We should keep our thumb there, huh? For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears, to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So now, our high priest that represents us before God is perfect and eternal. And that's why in verse 9, again, those who obey Him receive eternal salvation. Because He's been made perfect. Totally satisfying God the Father, and He's in a permanent priesthood designated by God. So again, this is why our hope should be so steadfast. Our hope should be so secure, so confident. The more and more we read this, that should build. So look at Hebrews 6.13. Hebrews 6.13. As we build on this hope. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one else, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. It's like this hope thing is tangible. It's like it's something we can actually grab. If you want to call it the anchor which is coming up, fine. But look at the wording there in verse 18, in the second half. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. It's like it's a tangible thing. That's how real it should be to us, in other words. Those who have taken refuge in the Lord 
should have great confidence and hope. And one reason is because it's impossible for God to lie in verse 18. Plus the oath he made. And again, I just want to point out this language again. I think this came out on Sunday morning in verse 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. How wonderful is it that God, knowing our weakness, desires even more to show the heirs the strength of his promises. It's just, it shows his caring, his love, his uh, uh, attentiveness to us, and that he understands our weakness. So again, verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. As David stated, through the Spirit of God on the board, in Psalm 2.12, do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Just an awesome picture. We just read in Hebrews, those who obey Him receive eternal salvation, right? And it really is like night and day. The darkness of night for the unbeliever. They're going to be lost. They're going to have to face God's wrath one day. But the total bright, brightness of midday once you're in Christ, once you seek refuge in Him. And then Psalm 34, 22. The Lord redeems the souls of His servants, and none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. God's promises, along with His oath, should make our hope strong and secure more and more every day by faith, of course. And faith comes from hearing, hearing the Word of Christ. So don't think you can muster up your own faith without reading your Bible. Again, look at Hebrews 6, verse 17. We're just going to read through now a little more. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. That's talking about the heavenly holy of holies, where Jesus is. One which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So there it is again. The uniqueness, the extreme uniqueness of Christ's high priesthood. So on the board, we saw this on Sunday, regarding Jesus' priesthood. It was from an order established by God well before Moses and the law were ever given, the order of Melchizedek, and it lasts, quote-unquote, forever, in Hebrews 6.20. Lasts forever. And again, picture the timeline in your head. This is 
big picture perspective. We don't keep, keep, keep the big picture in mind. Moses, the law, the high priests, the priests of the Jewish people, right? Centuries, many centuries after Melchizedek. So, you know, if we go back to the time of Melchizedek and, and, and Abram, before he was even a Jew, picture the Jews didn't even exist yet. Picture there was no such thing as a, a race that God created for himself yet. Okay, there's just a bunch of people on the earth, uh, Gentiles, all Gentiles, and it was a crazy place even back then. It was a faithless world. But God, as we talked about also on Sunday, reserved a remnant for himself. A few faithful always. He always reserves a few, at least. And one of them was the high priest named Melchizedek. So go to Hebrews 7, verse 1. Let's again revisit this man and, and, and his history and why he's compared to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7, 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. And is this just a coincidence? Of course not, right? Because he's the perfect type of Jesus Christ, who is a king of righteousness and a king of peace. On the board, we saw Psalm 85, 9 through 10. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. It's a big deal. Jesus had both titles given to him just as Melchizedek had. So on the board, we saw Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Obviously talking about Jesus. And then go to Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Um, hold your place in Hebrews. Jeremiah 23, 5. <clears throat> And this is a wonderfully powerful passage that's worth our time here regarding the righteousness of our Lord. Jeremiah 23.5 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king. There it is, the king of righteousness, right? He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will, will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So on Sunday, the Spirit reminded us why our Lord was so pleasing to our Father. And it's not rocket science. Jesus always did everything right. He was perfectly righteous. And so, how pleased is a father with that? We, we can't measure, we can't even understand perfection right now in our flesh, but 
it's very simple why God kept saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He lived in righteousness always and perfectly. And his perfect obedience made him the perfect son and also made him the perfect sacrifice. So there are no coincidences in Holy Scripture. And as a type of our Lord Jesus Christ, Melchizedek's name and title pointed to our Savior, who would represent us as our great high priest forever. Again, look at Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now there are no details in Holy Scripture that allow us to limit Melchizedek or put boundaries on him. Some people, some, some Bible teachers, even think Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate form of Christ. Uh, personally, I don't, but he's given these descriptions, made like the Son of God, and he remains a priest perpetually. That's what it says about Melchizedek. God did this on purpose to illustrate the perpetual priesthood of Christ for us. And that is directly related to why our hope should be so certain in our hearts. So let's travel back in time again to see um, what this man Melchizedek did. Go to Genesis 14. Hold your place in Hebrews again. Actually, you don't even have to if you don't want to. We're going to go to Psalm after this. But Genesis 14, verse 18. And what's interesting is this is the only life experience we have recorded about Melchizedek. We don't even know if he died a physical death. It actually says he didn't in uh, Hebrews 7.3. Maybe he was raptured like Enoch. We don't know. We don't know. We can't speculate. But there is some mystery here. And this is the only life experience about this man, about what he did in his life right here. Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. Meaning Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. And if you think about it, it's really wonderful that we don't know where this priest came from. That he did just kind of show up out of nowhere and then disappeared again. We don't know his beginning or his end as stated in Hebrews. Yet this priest represented Abram to the Lord and blessed him. And we only have one other mention in the Old Testament of this man. Uh, go again to Psalm 110, verse 1. And ironically, it's in a prophecy about the Lord, about the Messiah. 
Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. And then verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So there we have a prophecy about the Lord's coming, and priest forever would be one of his offices. So go back to Hebrews 7, verse 3. That's all we got about Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So again, <coughs> excuse me, on the board, this is kind of a shocking point, really, when you consider who Abraham was. Melchizedek is declared as being greater than Abraham, who is the father of our faith. And this makes sense considering he's a type of our Lord, who's greater than all, of course. But otherwise, it makes no sense. This man comes out of nowhere and is honored by Abraham. And Abraham is seeking his blessing, not the other way around. So look at verse 8. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes. Remember Levi, the priesthood came from Levi? Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still on the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, Jesus, 
you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We just saw that quote in Psalm 110. So again, on the board, keep our main question in mind as we continue to read this, because this, the more we read this should give you more and more hope. Why is our hope so certain? Just keep reading. Verse 18. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope. Is that word better again? It's really an understatement. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it, inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The only way he can save us forever is if his priesthood is permanent. How can he be saved? How could we be saved forever if, if, if his priesthood ended? And then you're stuck without a perfect priest representing you anymore. So again, verse 24. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. And then Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. This is the heavenly tabernacle. This is the heavenly holy of holies where Jesus entered behind the veil as our forerunner and he made peace with God for us as a man once for all. So what a wonderful explanation of the quote-unquote better way that God came up with for us. One with eternal power and ramifications that wasn't limited to or subjected to the law. That's why the different priesthood had to be totally separate from the law and eternal in nature. And that was Melchizedek's priesthood. And this is why Hebrews chapter 10 talks about a once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus Christ, by taking his own perfect blood into the Holy of Holies as our great high priest, 
once for all satisfied the righteous requirements of God the Father. And again, that's one reason he's called the Lord of Righteousness in Jeremiah 23. On the board again, the Lord our righteousness. His precious blood paid the eternal price. Unlike the blood of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, which were only temporary until the great and final sacrifice came in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10. So we now have an eternal high priest in the heavens representing us forever. Our great hope. Just enjoy this, you know. Just enjoy the simplicity and purity of this principle. Jesus is eternally, perpetually, and permanently representing us sinners before God. Hebrews 7, 3 and 24. In today's day, people might be blessed to say they have a pastor whose heart is after God, as we are blessed here at NCC. What a great blessing, right? But everyone's quote-unquote term on earth runs out. At this point, I can see pastor going, yay, thank God. But um, any representative you might have, like a pastor, you know, who at least teaches you, there's no need for a priest anymore to represent you. But it's all temporary. But with Jesus, it's not. And on the board, in Jesus, we have a great high priest who lives on forever. I know you know this, but... To be familiar with this is ridiculous because it's so everything. It means everything. We have a great high priest who lives on forever, resurrected from the dead, and seated at the right hand of God the Father. His term never runs out, and his qualifications can never be questioned. Never. So that's why we, have, we should have this ridiculous hope. Every day we wake up, we should be thanking the Lord just to, for, for life itself, and for eternal salvation through Christ. Eternal. His term never runs out. His qualifications can never be questioned. It's a dream come true for any religious person. How am I going to satisfy God? Right? All these other religions is a works program. Every other religion is about earning your way to God. And therefore this fear. Because everyone knows they're a sinner deep down. But this literally changes everything. This is what every religion is hoping is true. If they open their, their minds and hearts to Christ, they'll see it is. But this is why, as came out on Sunday, we should be willing to lose our lives for him. We should be willing to <clears throat> not put our own life first. What we think our life should be, for example, our self-life. We should be willing to, and I know it's painful, but cast it off piece by piece almost like you're on a ship with a bunch of cargo, we should be willing to throw over a piece of cargo one at a time. He doesn't even ask us to throw it all over at once in His grace and mercy. But we should willingly want to give up our lives and lose it for Him because of what He did once for all that we're so familiar with sometimes. When we pause and consider the love that motivated Him to do what He had to do, at the cross to make this all possible, we should be compelled to love him back by sheer gratitude. 
as the Spirit ended with on Sunday and asked us to personally contemplate 1 John 4, 19. We love because He first loved us. And again on the board, in Jesus we have a great high priest who lives on forever, resurrected from the dead and seated at the right hand of God the Father. His term never runs out and his qualifications can never be questioned. And thus our hope is steadfast and secure. There shouldn't be a question mark. There is because we're in the flesh. And some days we just have our eyes on the wrong thing. Our eyes aren't fixed on Jesus. They're fixed on other things or self. But our hope should be steadfast and secure because of the point on the board. So turn now to Hebrews chapter 10. We've got about 10 minutes left. All that really was review with some things the Spirit added in. But I hope it was good to just read through that, you know, these chapters. And they just spell it all out and lay it all out. And it's rich. And now Hebrews 10, a little follow-up on what we've already noted. Before we read from Hebrews 10... The book of Hebrews, remember, was written to the Jews. Just get some perspective for a minute. Step back. The book of Hebrews was written to the Jews, a.k.a. Hebrews. That's why it's called Hebrews. <laughs> what were the Hebrews or the Jews used to doing at this time in history, even after Jesus came? What were they used to doing, even after Jesus came? On the board, after the cross, the mistake that the Jews were making was still sacrificing animals, shedding animal blood to cover their sins. That's a better way to put it, to cover their sins, not pay for their sins, but to cover their sins when their Messiah had just come and made the final sacrifice for sin. So this was their mistake. This is what the book of Hebrews is largely focused on. They, there's no more animal sacrifices needed, Jews, even, even Jews that believed in Christ, that repented and believed in Christ, they, they still fell back on the law because they were so used to doing it. And this included sacrifices. So that's the perspective. And that's the audience the author is writing to in Hebrews. And the author is trying to tell them it's all been fulfilled now. The promised one that we've been waiting for has come. He became the Lamb of God for us. And the final sacrifice has been made. So that helps a great deal as we read Hebrews 10. <clears throat> Excuse me. Look at Hebrews 10.1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshippers having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now remember, with the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat by the high priest, their sins would be covered, but they weren't permanently taken away. So that's why it says in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, 
when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Now pause right there for a second. Jesus knew his destiny was to be the Lamb of God, to take away our sins once for all. And as it says here, this was the Father's will. Again, verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. That's huge, that statement. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. That's one reason why Jesus was a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek and not under the law. But instead, he represented a perfect priesthood. So man had a temporary solution before. But now there was a better way established by God, one that was going to be permanent. Through Jesus, he took away the first to establish the second. Just as he took away the temporary Levitical priesthood and established a permanent priesthood. And now after Christ has come, instead of us relying on a person on earth, a fellow sinner even, to represent us as a priest before God, we don't rely on a person to represent us to God anymore. Even Peter said, we're all priests now, if you believe in Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we're all priests. He's the high priest, but we're all priests. So we no longer have the need of a person to represent us before God. This is one area the Catholics are off, because there's no longer a need for a priest to represent the people before God. Now that Jesus has come, they're missing the point. They're still under the law, like the Jews were who were still sacrificing animals for sin. So Jesus became the one perfect sacrifice that would fulfill God's righteous requirement for all time. Now he's our priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now look at verse 10. We just saw he takes away the first in order to establish the, establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. If you ever need encouragement, if you ever forget the hope that and how, if your hope is not stable and secure in your heart, read Hebrews 10 verses 10 through 14. Because the dogmatic nature of this language, the finality of what Christ has done for us is just overwhelming. 
sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Back to the animal sacrifices. There's no more offerings needed for sin because these things are totally forgiven now through Christ. As the perfect offering, there's no longer any offering for sins required. And we now have a great high priest who represents us in the heavens to God, one far greater than what the law presented and not temporary and limited in power. So we'll close with this idea. We only got two minutes left. But remember that a priest represents sinful people to God. That's his main duty. And also know that Jesus in the scriptures is called our advocate as well. He's not just called our high priest. He's called our advocate in like a similar role of representing us. And even Job knew this during his harsh testing, well before the Lord Jesus Christ came into the flesh. On the board in Job 16, 19, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is on high. The Lord is called his advocate. And go to 1 John 2, verse 1, as we close. 1 John 2, verse 1. So just picture it all. He's in the temple with the Lord. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's our high priest representing us. He's advocating for us despite Satan's accusations against us. My little children, First uh, John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. There it is again. The King of righteousness. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The Greek word for advocate is parakletos. It means an intercessor or a consoler. And it's the same Greek word used for the Holy Spirit when Jesus said, to the apostles, I'm going to send you a helper. The Holy Spirit's going to be a helper. It's a parakletos. It's an intercessor and a consoler. So both the Spirit and the Lord Jesus are our advocates at the right hand of God the Father. And Jesus, as our great high priest, advocates for us even as we sin and fail. But the Lord, by His tremendous grace and mercy, is a very present help in time of need. Like Hebrews 4.16 says, approach the throne of grace boldly because of your high priest and your advocate being there. That's the only reason. But that's the greatest reason. That's valid, 100% valid with God. So on the board, 
Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. We'll continue on Thursday. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word and the strength that your word gives us, increasing the hope in our hearts of what we have in Christ Jesus. We thank you for shedding light on his great high priesthood and Melchizedek and what it means. And we thank you, Father, for a better way through your precious Son once for all. We thank you for sanctifying us once for all through the offering he made. And Father, help us bring these words out to all the religious people out there that are trying to work their way to heaven. Help them understand the final sacrifice has been made for sin and his sins are literally taken away in Jesus. Father, give us the strength and the courage to spread your good news throughout this world and with everyone we meet. We ask these things in Christ's precious name and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen.